want to welcome everybody back to the Behind the Well Show. This is your host, Roger Abel. I've got Elias Randall in the studio today. What's happening, Eli? We're getting close yeah. to Thanksgiving, about a month away. Halloween's coming up in a week. Yeah, yeah, we are. Everyone, welcome back to the show. Hope you're enjoying listening, and I know I'm just happy to be here. Every time I can be on the show is a win for me, so happy to be here. We've kept you around for I don't know how many episodes, but enough, quite a few enough. I've been telling my friends and family, I'm basically a worldwide celebrity at this point. So <laughs> I love it. Hey, what are your kids going, going as for Halloween? Uh, so my daughter is going to be Harry Potter. Um, and my son is going to be a cow. Nice. <laughs> nice. Where's the beef? So yeah. you get a kick out of this yesterday. I was, um, I had to go to my dentist, and we started talking about just random stuff, and guess what he asked me about? How much candy you eat? No. I had that discussion like four years ago, but uh, I don't eat that much candy anymore. Um, but he asked me about Bitcoin, Shibu Inu, and AMC. The dentist? The dentist. Did you? So, okay. <laughs> It was it was the standard response that, that we give most of the time. But what was funny, I, I was thinking back to the Halloween show we did and I had the AMC costume. I said, Hey, I want as an I want as a meme stock. And he said, What's that? I go, AMC. And then he started laughing. He goes, That's funny. But yeah, those are the three things he asked me about. Meme stocks, Bitcoin, and Shibu Inu. And I've been going to the guy for I don't know, maybe like ten years. And we'll talk like light finance, but never like, hey, after after you're done getting your teeth done, come talk to me for a minute. Yeah. It's just so crazy. That's all. He's like, what do you think about this? Should I be buying this stuff? And, you know, I gave him the standard response. You know, it's gambling. Small percentage of your portfolio if you do it. He goes, but he's in the camp of Jamie Dimon. I don't think it's worth anything. Like, I don't get it. What is it? So he said that. He said, I don't understand it. Yeah, he goes, how is it worth anything? And so I said, well, that kind of leads to your answer, whether you should buy this or not. Yeah, right there. That's Just run with that. That's all you need. And, I mean, I wasn't there for the conversation, but there's much simpler ways to build your wealth. Oh, and he And has. if you're a dentist, I mean, you're obviously making a high income. So why stub your toe buying Shibu Inu? Well... Just my opinion. It went up a lot. So people feel like they're missing out, that whole idea that they're missing out. But, yeah, I, I, that's the advice I gave. If you don't understand it, you don't feel comfortable, why would you buy it? And then if you do, just it's your speculation money. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you if, you like, yeah, if you like trading and speculating and you like no, doing that, great, do it. It's no different than jumping on the MGM, gra MGM um, Sportsbook app and betting the Cyclones to – to not cover you know <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah it's much yeah it's much more similar like like you said it's gambling it, to me it's not investing it's gambling if you like to gamble go for it do it um one thing that i saw i don't know if you saw this article but um the nine months after the investigation into gamestop the sec concludes that things got crazy <laughs> you no kid so i read that and i'm like you don't say <laughs> uh they basically went back and researched what happened with the GameStop and whether there was a gamma short um, and a lot of different things that happened with that. And as we remember, the, the price of AMC, the price of GameStop, they just shot through the roof. Um, 
And the thought was that many of these companies actually didn't have a lot of real value to them based upon their sales and their earnings. And it was really driven by the zero commission trading apps like Robinhood that are out there. Um, and the other market makers like Citadel Securities who helped with the order flow of that. And that's really what they were, they were investigating. People are paying for order flow or these hedge funds who are executing the trades are paying Robinhood to send funds to them uh, or the order flow to them. And it was thought that, and there was a, a study out or a research paper that Robinhood had one of the highest payments for order flow out there. And it was thought because they have less sophisticated investors, which most of the people on Robinhood, it was probably the first time they'd ever made an options trade in their entire life was when they got in this app. And part of it's because of the gamification of that application, they thought it was fun. And I think there were like little ticker scrolling by of like tips of what somebody could do or a trade they could make, which that's also being investigated as to whether that's actually considered advice. Um, if you're scrolling on the screen, which in my opinion, I mean, of course it's advice. If somebody doesn't know how to trade an option and you scroll by and say, this might be a good idea. Well, that's advice. And I know that's under investigation as we speak right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. I definitely think that should fall into the category of advice. So I had, I had a couple thoughts when reading this and it seems like, well, one of the gist of this article was they felt like the report the SEC came out with was, was uh, fairly vanilla. So I think, and I think they talked about the um, people on Reddit might get mad. I think some people were expecting the hedge funds to get in trouble, which I would imagine at this point when they shut down trading, that was probably within like within the rules, within the laws, because I'm sure the SEC would have found some discrepancies or said you shouldn't have done this. Um, but I will say I was interested, and I don't know if this is settled yet, but to me what I'm really interested in to see, because my understanding of this payment for order flow when Robinhood is paying more, now I know that they're saying these are all commission-free trades, but I'm interested in if those aren't getting executed at the best price, is it really a commission-free trade? So that's kind of really the answers I'm waiting to see and what I was looking for. No, it's not a commission-free trade. They're not getting the best price. They're building in the, the, the spread there, and that's why they're able to pay more. And that's part of the investigation into Robinhood, which they had their investigation a long time ago. But it, you know, is that actually, should that happen in the market? Because once again, should it's, what happen? Should the order flow? Yeah. Should there be payment for order flow? And number two, should there be able to be build in a spread that's larger than somebody else into the profitability matrix? So, so um, we'll see what actually happens with that. I don't know. They're under investigation. They probably will continue to look into what happened with all of the payment for order flow. And it goes back to what we talked about like a year ago. Rules are going to change over time. Just like Robinhood halted trading, stopped taking trades, well, rules change. So the rules for payment for order flow could change as well in the future. We'll just have to see what actually comes out of it. Yeah, and the other, the other thing I thought was interesting from this was this report kind of suggests that the price ran up more because of the buyers than people... Um, filling their short orders, which I was kind of surprised by because I thought this all escalated because of the short squeeze. But there's, according to this report, 
they just had so many people making buys um, on GameStop that that's what really drove the price. There wasn't as much uh, short squeezing as what people thought. We've seen that over the last year, this momentum trade. Once something starts going, it starts to build some momentum. And I used your phrase that you coined last year with my dentist yesterday. What was that? What's my phrase? I'm not going to repeat it, but it's go long on. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. And he said, yeah, that makes sense. And what it is, people just piling in, even if they don't know what it is, they see the price go up. Shibu Inu, it's up like five times in price. It's just people piling into the trade because they see it moving like, man, it's moving. And now it's probably it's on Coinbase. So it's Coinbase every day when you go in and look, it shows the cryptocurrencies that are trading and how much the percent, the 24 hour change in percentage is up. So if it's up 200%, what's happening, people are just go piling in there like, I want to get a piece of that. And they feel like they're buying tons of shares at a low price, which you are. I mean, it doesn't cost anything to own 20 million Shibu Inu coins. Yeah, does and, it even trade over a dollar? Like, what's the value of a Shibu Inu? It's like 0.000041 cents. But Graham Stephan, which we follow, did a whole um, thing on could Shibu Inu actually get to a penny. And it was just a massive market capitalization, bigger than the entire cryptocurrency market if it got to a one penny valuation. For it to go to a penny. To go to a penny. Oh my gosh. Which, if you think about it though, it doesn't mean it won't, it just means it could get really crazy. Um, but it's just a momentum trade, and that, that's what happened with this. People saw this and they were on the Reddit boards and people were fueling that fire. Hey, yeah, let's do this, let's do this, and getting tips from other people just piling into the trades. And that's what caused that price to spike through the roof. Yeah, and people, I'm sure there's maybe listeners that disagree with this. Um, but the one I want, here's what I want investors to know. Like there's really no, there's no utility in any digital currency right now. Even Bitcoin, and I am probably bullish on blockchain and stuff like that for future use. But really when you think about what it really is and like these momentum trades, it gets ran up and then everyone sells off, the price comes down. It's just transferring wealth. It's transferring dollars from one person to another person, but there's no actual utility in any of these cryptocurrencies. There's no place today that I know of that you can go use Bitcoin to buy something, can convert it to dollars. Yeah, you can convert it to a dollar but bill. I can't go to Walmart. I can't go to Target. I can't go down to the local, you know, watering hole and say, hey, here's my Bitcoins. I have uh -huh. to sell them on an exchange and convert them to dollars. Cash is still king, right? Cash is still king. And that was, <laughs> you know what? That's what my dentist was talking about. He goes, what can I do with this? And, okay. you know, I talked through, we had the gentleman who came in here and spent four hours with us and kind of gave us a breakdown on Bitcoin. I told him that theory and he said, well, I see it happening, but maybe not really. And I said, well, that's why the true Bitcoiners are never going to sell because they believe it'll be a world currency someday. Yeah, right. right? That's why they won't sell. And that'll always help support the price because they're not speculators. They're still buying at any price and they're going to buy it all the way until it gets to a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree with that. And speaking of, um, that guy owes me like two weeks of my life back. I spent a lot of time on YouTube and on the internet researching <laughs> to like learn 
it was like I came full circle. Like I understand it better now, but I just learned all this stuff. And at the end of it, it's like, well, I'm still not a buyer, but I know a lot more about it now. So went, that guy owes me two hole. weeks. That's all right. <laughs> One thing I noticed, I read an article the other day, and I know locally um, we've heard a lot about the strikes at John Deere, the plants in Iowa and Illinois. There's more than 10,000 pe- workers on strike. I didn't realize this year that there's been 176 union strikes out there. I didn't know that either. I knew of the John Deere one because that's big around here. It's been on the news every single night. Um, Kellogg's is on strike in Nebraska, Tennessee, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Those started in October. There's a strike in Hollywood. There's 60,000 workers in Hollywood who are on strike. And all of them feel like, and this is portrayed in the research we've done, all of them feel like they're not getting paid equally based upon the profits of the company. And a lot of these workers during COVID were actually deemed essential. They had to show up every day. And we're seeing this backlash, partly because we have a tight labor market. We were seeing this backlash of employees wanting more from their companies or they're not going to go return to their, I'm going to quote their crappy job. It's in the article. And I thought about this and I went to school for finance. Um, University of Iowa, and I remember the very first day of corporate finance. The professor got up there. His name was Garf- uh, Professor Garfinkel, University of Iowa. Not my favorite professor. But the first day of class, he got up and he said, here's the first rule of corporate finance. Management works on behalf of shareholders, not employees. And the employees feel like these companies should work on their behalf, but they don't own the company unless they're a shareholder. But just inherently, that's how the corporate world is structured. Whether that's right or wrong, I'm not here to debate that. But that's who management works for. They work to maximize shareholder value. And that's part of the reason that unions have been formed, so they can fight to take some of that back in the masses versus one or two people complaining because in the grand scheme of things, we've got 10,000 workers at John Deere striking and they're still not getting what they want. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm personally, um, you know, personally, I think unions are a very good thing because of collective bargaining. It's like what you just said, one or one or two people complaining or negotiating on their own. You don't have much, you don't have much leverage when you're going with a big corporation like that. And I can understand where these workers are coming from because we had a global pandemic, but you know, a lot of these people, a lot of the people working these jobs, they continued to work, even though we're all told it's probably best to stay home unless you're essential, but they sacrificed and continued to go to work. And I get, they want to get a little more piece of the pie now. But like you said, management and corporations, they're working on behalf of the shareholders to continue growing uh, the value of the company. I can see where these workers are coming from and why maybe they feel a little underappreciated. And I know we spent some time, we came up with a few things, actually four items, um, probably specific to union workers to help them. Uh, But before we dive into that, I think you wanted to maybe say a couple more, couple more things. So I'm glad you brought up unions and how you, how you think of unions. But today, 68% of Americans now approve of unions. That's the highest proportion of people since 1965. So if you think about this, we went through this period of time where unions were very popular in, the, in 1965. 78% of people 
1965 thought unions were favorable. Over time, that's decreased. They've seen decreased value. But today, 68% of Americans approve of unions. So I think one of the things you said is that, you know, they help people organize, help help make decisions. We have one of the most pro-union presidents of all time. Joe Biden's very, very pro-union. He actually, um, in April, uh, he asked, um, he was asked to create a task force to promote the labor organization. So organizing unions. So I thought that was a good idea. And, and I'll let you go back in what you were talking about. But we have come up with four preparation things you should do if you're going on strike. Because if you're part of a union, you should expect at some point in time, you're going to have to stick up for the union potentially strike. And that's not good or bad. It just is what it is. It's how you can get things done and put pressure on these larger companies to actually listen. So there's four things we've come up with that would be meaningful if you know that you're going to go on strike. And I think people should realize that the average strike is 41.4 days. So this isn't like you got to get through for six or eight months, typically. But it's also not just like a week or two off of work. Yeah, right. So if the average is 40 days, we're talking a month, a month and a half. The longest strike in U.S. history came to an end in 2020 after 1,029 days. United Steelworkers in Idaho's um, at Idaho's Lucky Friday went on strike in 2017 um, after the the company tried to impart uh, a new contract on the workers. So that was a really long strike. That's three years. That's not normal. But let's say we have somebody who knows they're going on strike. Let's just assume the average is 41 days. What's the first thing they should do to, uh, to kind of make sure that they're on the right track to handle this? Yeah. So one being in touch with your union is a good idea to know, to, to know and understand the benefits that might be there. Um, some unions have strike funds that everyone pays into and you can get a certain amount of money every week. And I would also maybe suggest if you are a union member and you don't understand all the benefits or no, you should get in touch with somebody to learn what those are. And if there isn't a strike fund, that might be a question to ask at a union meeting. Do we have a strike fund? If not, why not? Um, which kind of, which leads me into the next one, the building up of an emergency fund. And I actually, and this is my personal, this is a personal opinion. I think if you're in a union that could potentially go on strike, you should maybe have two emergency funds. You have your regular emergency fund, and then one you consider a strike fund. Um, Just because you might need a little bit more money just sitting in cash in a savings account than someone who works a job that they know if, you know, that maybe they know is very reliable and they're never going to go on strike. So you're probably going to need more cash available than a lot of other people who would potentially never go on strike. So that would be that'd be a big that'd be a big question for me if I'm working with a union member or I am a union member, how much money do I need in my emergency fund? You really need to dial in the monthly expenses but also be ready to replace that income for I don't know 2 or 3 months maybe, maybe more depending on what industry you work in. Well, that's a good point to maybe have two funds because you still could have an emergency happen while you're on strike. Right? Exactly. The water heater yeah. can go out. You can get in a car accident. All those things can happen while you're on strike. So really it's having, like you said, a strike fund and an emergency fund. And ultimately you don't know how long the strike's going to last. But we know average is 41 days. Um, 
And what it really gets down to, Eli, it's no different than having a financial plan for retirement. You're putting together a plan for if you go on strike. And, and what I mean by that is, okay, honey, if we go on strike or significant other or whatever you're talking, whoever you're talking to, if we go on strike, this is what we need to do. We need to buckle down on the expenses. Maybe know in your budget, what are the stuff we have to keep going? And what's all the discretionary things we could cut back on when we have one less job? And for some families, it might not even be an issue. Some families, the spouse might be employed somewhere else, but I know a lot of people where husband and wife work at the same factory. So if you have two husband and wife or spouses work at John Deere, you're both on strike right now. You better really have a solid plan. All this is really about is just planning well in advance and knowing what you're going to do. It's being proactive versus reactive. You know, it's human nature to just deal with the problem when it comes. It's mature to have a plan to deal with a problem when it happens. Would you say it's the adult thing to do? It's, it's adulting. It's adulting. It's, adult, it's adulting. Um, yeah. And then the, the last one we have here is avoiding debt and tapping into retirement savings. So, and this is, I mean, avoiding too much debt, tapping into retirement, that's something that's kind of common sense stuff that nobody should do. But, you know, to me, it goes back to if you're, if you're a union member, you have your good emergency fund, you have a plan to make income, either a strike fund or maybe the union offers benefits for when you guys go on strike. Um, the last, you know, your last resort, and you really don't want to do this, is tap into your retirement accounts. You never want to deplete your long-term savings to make ends meet. Like we just said, the adult thing to do would be to have a plan in place for that situation so you don't end up doing that. Now, those are great insights. Um, if anybody out there needs help kind of talking through how to develop that plan, get us at btwellshow.com. We'd be happy to talk with somebody if they have some questions for us. Have you ever heard Jonas in our office, Elias, use the analogy of watching your 401k every day and watching Zillow every day to yes, compare I your have. house price? Yes, like he I talks have. about that, like how crazy it is that we check our 401k every single day to see the value. But we can see the value of our house every single day on Zillow. And I'm going to admit, I now go to Zillow, not every day, but frequently to see what the housing market's doing because it's been the housing market, it seems everywhere, is just exploded through the roof. And one of the things I, I realized here a few months ago is Zillow was actually buying homes, meaning they were buying homes renovating them and reselling them. So you can go on Zillow and get an offer on your home, or you were able to in the past. The service through Zillow was actually called iBuyer, where it purchases your home, sells a home directly to consumers. Typically they renovate them in, in between. Um, because of logistical problems, shortages in supplies, shortages in labor, which we all know is going on. I mean, I finally got my house fixed after derecho. It's been like over a year they've paused their program and maybe that raises some red flags. And so I don't know whether they paused it because of prices or they raised pause it strictly because of kind of operational logistical concerns. But at the end of the day, it might raise some red flags for the overall housing market. Yeah. Well, according to the article and the statement Zillow put out, it sounds like it's more a, a logistical, just kind of nightmare for them. They're already at capacity. And basically they're buying a house, remodeling it and selling it. So they're 
part of their business is flipping houses. And I mean, I totally understand how you could get in this position because of the material shortage and labor shortage. So it's great if you want to have this as part of your business, but if you don't have enough labor to complete the project, then it really doesn't matter. So I don't know, I guess I'm not sure if I feel like this is a red flag for the, I guess it might be a red flag in the areas of we don't have enough home builders. We don't have enough labor that does that kind of work. I could see it being a red flag for that. Um, Here's what concerns me. My opinion is still prices are going to continue to go up in the housing market, but. Here's what concerns me about it. Okay. Is when you get large companies, companies the size of Zillow that are purchasing the homes, they can make errors. Right. They can overpay. Yes. They can overpay for the house. And if it doesn't work out well, it just gets gobbled up into the big grand scheme of things. And they are overpaying right now. They're overpaying. And that's where I think the red flag maybe isn't that they stop the program. The red flag is this is who the average consumer who's looking to buy a house is competing with. Right. So the 24 year old who's going to buy their starter home. They're competing with Zillow to buy it. And for a new home buyer, 10 or 15 or $20,000 or more on the price of a home, that's let's call it $150,000, $200,000. It might be the difference between them getting the house and not getting the house. Then Zillow can overpay. So it just makes me wonder how much of this market is actually being driven by institutional buyers and not actually retail buyers, because I know there's private equity now buying homes to rent. Mm-hmm. Big nice in, there's homes. other institutions. I just, other than I just heard this morning that um, of new, all the home sales, 9% of the home sales, the last homes report that came out um, was over a million dollars. 9% of the homes purchased were over a million dollars. 9% of the total of, homes purchased the last year? In the last quarter were the over a million dollars. So wow. it, I think the red flag is that they're stopping this. They could be saying they're stopping this because of labor shortages, but it also could be they feel like the prices are getting out of control. I don't speculate on prices, but I do know that anytime institutional buyers are involved, they can make mistakes. You know, most... Yeah, they can afford to make the mistakes. Most local, right. re, most local you know, real estate investors, which is what's driven that market for years, right? The guy in town who has 13 properties and he buys them and rents them and rehabs them. They can't afford to make mistakes. They can't afford to overpay $20,000 per home because if it doesn't work out, that's all his money. Zillow, well, if it doesn't work out, they'll make it up somewhere else. I mean, they're a gigantic company. So I think for me, that's the red flag is that we're competing as retail home buyers with Zillow. Yeah, and that that's an interesting take and that that's a good take on that cuz how you know, especially you know, there's people that are maybe less price sensitive, but think about like first-time home buyers trying to buy your first home in this market, the prices are one we have a shortage of homes and then you're competing against Zillow and other big institutions. Like that's that's really kind of a bad spot to be in. At some point it's going to flip because I personally know multiple people that have fairly expensive homes, second homes, other real estate that all 
are in the camp of maybe I should be selling. I mean, multiple people I know. Hey, I have a second house. Well, maybe I should sell it. I have a primary residence that, man, I never thought I could get this out of it. You know, they built they built the house with everything that they wanted, which is no value to the next person. But now, because of the market, they can get everything out of that house. I know multiple people like this. So eventually, what's going to happen, these people all list their places, and then there'll be a gluttony of inventory, and prices will come down. The other thing that's going to start to fight this uphill battle, and some of the reason Zill might be backing off of this, is um, interest rates. I heard this morning interest rates are up to three and a quarter on a mortgage now. Well, that's the same interest rate you're getting at 275 three months ago. So interest rates are clicking up, which may start to put put buyers in more of a pressure pressure spot, right? As interest rates go up, the price you can pay for the for the home goes down. Right. Or your maximum price. And most people when they buy a home, they borrow to their max. They don't get approved for four hundred or eight hundred and buy half. They typically go up to or more than they were approved for. That's just human nature. Oh, they said we could get this. Yeah, so and I think that the article touched on that too, that Zillow might have con- some concerns about interest rates starting to go up, and then they really can't make a lot of these deals work. So and remember, Zillow, inter- has, Zillow has data. They, have, <laughs> they can mine all the data of all the home sales. There might be something in their data that they're able to extrapolate and say, hey, look, something doesn't look right or there's a trend that's beginning, and they're going to see it before the general public because how many transactions are being done – through Zillow or reported to Zillow. Oh, re- compared to the local person, they have all the information compared to the local person who has nothing compared to what they have. When you used to look at homes, you go to your local MLS. It's where you went. You try to find a real estate company that had an MLS search that they didn't make you sign up for and didn't charge anything to do. Like that's how you look for homes, MLS. <laughs> now they go to Zillow. I mean, when I look at real estate, I don't mess around going to the local company. I go right to Zillow because they have everything listed. Yeah, it's all right there. You don't have to drive around. Yeah, it's all right there. So uh, with that said, I want to thank everybody for listening. If anybody needs help getting a financial plan or has any questions for us, you can go to btwellshow.com. We'd be more than happy to help you out. Until next time, thanks, Elias. Thanks for listening. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.